Well, good evening. Great to have everyone back here tonight. We're slowly but surely moving our way through the minor prophets. In fact, we only have two books left, Zechariah and Malachi. But as you heard uh, David mentioning in the announcements, we're not going to be meeting on Sunday, the next two Sunday nights because of events that are going on, Friends and Family Day. And then the next Sunday after that on the 29th is Trunk or Treat. So it's kind of unfortunate timing for finishing this series, but uh, we're going to finish it nonetheless. And the first Sunday in November, I believe, David will have Malachi for us. But uh, that'll be a couple more weeks from now. Um, but it's been a great study. I hope, you, I hope you've learned some. I've learned a lot doing this study. I think David would echo that. Going through these books has been a really great challenge for us. And I hope it has been for you as well. We're going to be in uh, Zechariah tonight. Almost said Malachi. I'm trying to jump ahead. But no, we've got to finish Zechariah first. So by way of overview, just want to kind of give you some things about this book. I think it's probably a, a little known book by many. And so just a couple things to help us kind of get a picture of this book. Number one is that Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. A contemporary of Haggai, meaning that Zechariah and Haggai were prophesying at the same time. A lot of times we may think that there was just one prophet at a time, but there were actually overlap with uh, many of the prophets. And Zechariah and Haggai definitely overlapped. Overlap. Look at what Ezra says in, uh, his, uh, in, in the writing in Ezra 5, 1 to 2. When the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. There's one other passage in Ezra, Ezra 6, 14. The elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So during this period of uh, Ezra's time, there we have Zechariah and uh, Haggai were prophesying, at least in part, their prophesying was to try to get the people to start rebuilding the temple. And that's what really what uh, Haggai is about in, in large part, is trying to motivate the people. Let's get to work. You remember, we've talked about this many times in this uh, series, that the people were disobedient to God, both Israel and Judah. And both of them were overtaken by foreign nations. Judah was overtaken by Babylon. They served exile for, uh, for 70 years. But in 539 B.C., the Persians overtook the Babylonians. And at the decree of Cyrus, really God's hand was in this. But at the decree of Cyrus, the Jews were able to go back and rebuild the temple. They were able to go back to Jerusalem after this exile period. And they were able to start rebuilding. Well, they met opposition. If you read in the first part of Ezra, there's adversaries. There's people who are trying to stop that rebuilding. And so for a while, the people were discouraged and they just let the building, uh, rebuilding of the temple fall flat. And so Zechariah and Haggai come along and they're trying to motivate the people. Hey, let's get back to work. Like, what are, what are we doing here? You, you guys are living in these nice houses. You, you're kind of being complacent. Let's get to rebuilding. Haggai is, is very, very more open just like hey let's get to rebuilding like let's get to this and I'm sure Zechariah said some of those things too but in his text in the book of Zechariah we see some different features between Zechariah and Haggai 
So what we see in Zechariah is a lot of visions. That's the second thing I want you to know. This is a very important part of this book. And if we, we don't get this point, you're really missing almost the first half of the book. Covers eight visions, some say nine, that Zechariah saw in really the first half of the book. Really chapters one through six. There's 14 chapters in this book. It's a longer uh, minor prophetic book. But Zechariah sees these visions. And you're going to notice that they're really strange. So this, this is what we call apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic images. If you're familiar with Revelation, a lot of these, this type of uh, kind of exotic imagery is there. Uh, Daniel has some of it. Ezekiel has some of it. It's meant to be taken in a symbolic, figurative way. For instance, in one of Zechariah's visions, there's a woman in a basket, and she's carried off by uh, some other women who have wings, carried off to another land. Now, there's not literally a woman in a basket somewhere being carried away by somebody with wing, people with wings, okay? It's symbolic for something else. And so if you try to interpret these things literally, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of difficult. Um, and I think that's kind of where a lot of interpreters have run into issues with the book of Zechariah is with these visions. You go read a, um, a commentary on the book of Zechariah, m many times they'll say this is one of the most difficult books to interpret. Um, and I think it's in part to these visions that some people try to apply some things to these visions that may not actually be there. Um, but nonetheless, they, they are kind of some interesting, uh, you see some interesting imagery here within these visions. But each of these visions, they point to a lesson for God's people. It, it's, it's a symbol. It's, a, it's figurative language for something God wants Zechariah to know and wants his people to know. They're not just these random things that God's showing Zechariah. They have a purpose. And we're going to look at uh, one here in just a minute. Next, I also want you to notice, this is a really awesome part about Zechariah, is the messianic prophecies that we find in the book of Zechariah. More so than any of the minor prophets, Zechariah talks about the Messiah, the coming of this king down the line. Zechariah talks about it a lot. Him and Isaiah are, are the two who talk about the Messiah the most. And you, I would just guess if every one of us just pulled out the book of Zechariah and started reading through, I'm willing to guess that most of us would recognize a lot of the phrases that you'll find in the book of Zechariah because they're quoted in the New Testament. You, you, they're, they're quoted about Jesus in the New Testament. And you'll, you'll see, we're going to look at some here in just a minute. You, oh, yeah, I recognize that passage. or I, I recognize that that was quoted there. A lot of stuff from Zechariah is quoted in the New Testament. He prophesied about the, the Messiah. Some are more overt references that you could really tell, oh, yeah, that, that's about the coming Messiah. Some are a little, uh, I guess, not as overt. Um, but still, the, the writers, particularly the gospel writers, quote Zechariah a, a number, on a number of occasions. I believe he's also quoted or alluded to a lot in the book of Revelation. But that's another very important feature of this book because that's really what it's all leading to, right? This coming king who's going to liberate the peoples. And so that's, these are some of the highlights that we find within the book of Zechariah I think are really important to understand as we get started here. But I want to start where Zechariah starts in chapter 1, starting in verses 1 through 6. I think this is, this is a really important place to start. And I, I, we'll kind of talk about the, the context here in just a second. But Zechariah, verse 1, st uh, starting in 1, 1. 
In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. I think this is a really important place to start for Zechariah. Because again, the people, the God's people were in exile for a long time. And they've come back. And Zechariah is saying, listen, don't be like your ancestors. Don't be like the, the ancestors that got you here in the first place, that, that got you into exile, that, that got you in this place where the temple was destroyed and everything in Jerusalem was wiped out by the Babylonians. Don't be like them. Return to the Lord. Come back to him. And you notice what he says, return to me. And what does he say? That I may return to you, says the Lord. And it reminds me of what James says. In his, uh, James 4, verse 8, I believe it is. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, right? If we come to God with, with true, repentant, and humble, con contrite hearts, God is not going to refuse us. God is going to welcome us back into his arms. Again, we have to have that true, repentant heart who's willing to change. And Zechariah starting here with the people. Return to the Lord. Don't continue in the pattern of your ancestors that the prophets prophesied to. They said punishment was coming and they still continued in sin. Don't be like that. Turn from your ways. Turn back to God. and He's going to turn to you. He's going he's to return back to you and you're going to have fellowship with him. That's what Zechariah starts with. This call to come back to God. Here's the thing. If the people were not in the right mindset, if their hearts weren't right, the building of the temple, the reestablishing of Jerusalem, it wasn't going to go right. They needed God on their side. They needed God to overcome the opposition they may have faced, they, they were facing in the rebuilding of the temple. They needed to truly come back to God to get this done, to rebuild the temple, to, to be God's people again, to obey his statutes. And the same is for us. That if there are times where we've wandered away, we got to come back. And I know we've talked about this a lot. But again, the prodigal son is that beautiful, beautiful picture of the father welcoming his son back. He came to his senses, remember? He was in the pig pen, but he came back. And the father ran out to him. And he'll do the same for you and I. But again, it calls for us to make that step. We've got to make that step to return if we've found ourselves wandering away. And so this is where Zechariah starts. Now, right after this, Zechariah starts to see all of his visions. And simply because of the time, we cannot talk about every one of these visions. But I, wanted you, I want you to see, that's probably way too small for a lot of you to see. Uh, but uh, I found online a chart that kind of broke down every single one of these visions and just kind of tells you what's in each vision. Now, some of the time, God kind of explains what's, what's going on. 
but other times you, you kind of have to interpret it a little bit. But uh, I want to just kind of read through this to show you. The first vision is a vision of a horseman who would put, horseman who would patrol the earth and report the condition of the earth. And the Lord promises to build his house in Jerusalem. And Zechariah asks, hey, what are these, my Lord? And the promise or outcome is the Lord is jealous for Jerusalem and promises that his house will be built there and that the Lord's cities will overflow with prosperity. All right, and this is, a, again, Zechariah is, is seeing a vision and it's, it's like a, a horseman amongst these trees. And you see this kind of, this vision play out that way. And God is saying he's jealous for Jerusalem and again, promising that his house will be built there. The second vision is a vision of four horns and four craftsmen. These horns, the, the horns scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen come down to terrify and cast down the horns. So there's four horns, and then there's four craftsmen. The four horns were the ones who scattered God's people, and these four craftsmen are going to basically come to punish those horns. And Zechariah again asks, what are these? What are these coming to do? And the promise or outcome is the craftsmen will cast down those who have oppressed Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The third vision is a vision of a man with a measuring line in his hand who comes to measure out Jerusalem. And Zechariah says, where are you going? And the promise or the outcome is that Jerusalem will be inhabited again and the Lord will be in the midst of his people. It's like, it's a really awesome picture in that one of, of this man measuring out Jerusalem. And it's just God's going to be this wall of fire around his people protecting them. It's a really cool vision. The, the fourth vision is a vision of Joshua the high priest and the removal of his iniquity as a representative of the people. We're going to look at that vision, so you can turn to Zechariah 3 if you have your Bibles. Um, but the promise or outcome is that Joshua the priest will rule the Lord's house and courts, and the coming of my servant the branch is promised. And that's, a, that's an allusion to Jesus, the Messiah, my servant the branch. The fifth vision is a vision of a lampstand and two olive trees. Um, Zechariah says, what are these, my Lord? What are these two olive trees? And the, the promise or the outcome is the rebuilding of the temple is charged to Zerubbabel and Joshua and will occur not by their power, but the, by the power of the Lord. God was going to be behind all of this. It wasn't just the people working on their own. God was going to be driving all of this. The next vision is a vision of a flying scroll. I told you this is kind of some different imagery, but a, a, a flying scroll um, and there's going to be curses that were going to come upon covenant breakers was, was what was on this both sides of this uh, scroll. The one who steals and the one who swears falsely were the ones who were being condemned on that scroll. The, seven, uh, the seventh vision was the one I talked about a minute ago. The vision of a woman in the basket later carried away by two other women. Um, Zechariah asked, what is it? Where are they taking the basket? And uh, the promise or outcome, wickedness symbolized by the presence of the woman is going to be removed, all right? And then the final vision is a vision of four chariots pulled by strong horses, red, black, white, and dappled. And Zechariah again says, what are these, my Lord? And the chariots and the horses, they go north, black and white, and south, dappled to patrol the earth. And so those are the visions that Zechariah sees, and you can find this online. I can send it to you if you want it. And there's, of course, you could dive a lot deeper into this, and I know you probably may have not caught a lot of that, but I just wanted to, you to see the visions that Zechariah sees and the messages that are tied to, to these. I do want to look at one uh, in detail, and it's uh, in Zechariah chapter 3. I think this one is one of the most uh, amazing uh, 
just visions that, that he sees, but a, a message for us that's so tied into this. I, I love this portion of, of scripture. So we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 3. This is a vision that Zechariah sees of Joshua the high priest. All right, so look at uh, starting in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 3 and going to verse 7. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let me put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. So Zechariah gets to see this vision. Again, it's, it's a vision, something that, that he's seeing, almost like a dream here. And the scene is Joshua standing, this idea of Joshua's the high priest. He works in the temple on behalf of the people. Like, he was really their representative to God, the high priest was. Very important uh, to, the, to the Jews. And so he's standing there, but the scene is not him really working in the temple. It's more of like a court scene, like a courtroom where Satan is standing to accuse him. Satan's accusing Joshua, God's high priest. Now, why is he accusing him? We don't get the exact accusation, but we do get that Joshua is wearing these filthy garments. Now, if you know anything about the priests, they could not have garments that were filthy. In fact, they had to have, there's this real, like the, almost this big ceremony for them to be cleansed to even begin working in the temple, to begin working in the tabernacle before the temple was built. And so they could not be, have these nasty garments on, but Joshua does. He's got these filthy robes on, the, this filth, these filthy garments, and Satan's accusing him, possibly saying, you're going to let him wear this while working for you, or maybe, maybe some other accusation. But here's the thing. Satan's not necessarily wrong in accusing Joshua. Joshua was sinful. We all fall short of God's glory. But again, Joshua was a representative of the people. And the people certainly had sinned. The people had walked away from God. And so he was, he was guilty. The people were guilty. And Satan's accusing him. But you notice what God does? God doesn't say, yeah, I got to get rid of you, Joshua. It's over. I got to get rid of my people. I've got to strike them all dead. It's over. No. God gives grace. And he says, take off those filthy robes. And I'm going to give you some better robes. I'm going to clothe you with the robes you're supposed to be wearing. The festal robes. These beautiful, clean robes. And notice what he says. Verse 4. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. The picture is Joshua's wearing these dirty robes, representative of his, of his sin. But God says, take that away, and let's give him what he's supposed to be wearing, these clean robes. I've taken away your iniquity, Joshua. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That God is taking away the iniquity, cleansing his people, cleansing Joshua. 
And it's a picture of what we get now under Jesus Christ, under the new covenant. We are dirty. We are sinful. We have our filthy robes on, if you will. And we need God to intervene, to change our clothes, if you will, to, to give us the new robes. And it's most beautifully said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, that those who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When we're baptized in the waters of baptism, our sins are washed away. And it's as if our dirty robes are put away and we put on Christ like a coat, like this coat right here. We've now put on our new robes. We put on our, our festal robes, if you will. We've been clothed with Christ. That's the only way to be clothed with Christ, by the way, is to be baptized, immersed, come into contact with his blood and have your sins washed away. That's how we access that. It's through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and by obeying him, being baptized in the waters, then we, our, our dirty, filthy robes are removed and we put on Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. And what a beautiful thing it is that we can have our filthiness washed away because of Jesus Christ. And it was pictured with, with Joshua, removing of his iniquity. And because, and, and God says, if you will walk in my ways... If you will obey me, you will have you will, you will always walk in my you will walk and perform my service. You'll have governed my house. You're going to be the high priest working in my courts. And again, once we're clothed with Christ, it's not hey we got to walk away. No, we we have to serve. It's time to obey, and we're going to stumble along the way. But we have forgiveness through Jesus Christ as long as we are walking in that light. And then what a beautiful picture that we get here all the way back in Zechariah of God removing his, uh, Joshua's iniquity. And what a picture it is for you and for me as well. Now, I do want to look real quickly at uh, the messianic prophecies that we see in Zechariah. I, I don't believe these are all of them. Um, these are just some that I think are really pretty uh, easy to pick out um, and and really ones that you'd probably recognize. So um, Zechariah 3 verse 8, I kind of referenced that. He says, my servant, the branch, is coming. And that's a reference to the Messiah. Uh, Jeremiah uses it. Isaiah uses it. And so Zechariah also uses it. Um, Zechariah chapter 9 verses 10 and 11 is a reference to the, the triumphal entry. That's, that's quoted in Matthew chapter 21 when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they're laying down those palm branches. You remember that? That's quoted. Zechariah is quoted there in Matthew 21 and in John 12. Then you get to Judas's betrayal about throwing the, the money down. Um, that's in Matthew chapter 27, verses 9 and 10. Um, Zechariah 12, verse 10 talks about them looking on him whom they've pierced. And that's John quotes that in John 19, 37 in reference to Jesus, right? He was pierced on, on the cross. Zechariah 13, verse 7, the apostles deserting Jesus, that's when he's in the garden and they, they come and arrest him and all of them scatter. And that's quoted in, it strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's uh, quoted in Matthew 26 and also in Mark chapter 14. And so you see these prophecies of, of the Messiah. Now I do want to look at Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, this is one of the, the messianic prophecies that we see in the book. Right before this, he's talking about uh, how these foreign nations are going to be punished. 
how God's going to deal with these other peoples. And then he gets to, to verse uh, 9, and he says, uh, he says this in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, again, right before this, it's all about judgment upon these other nations, but look what's going to happen for God's people. That there's a coming king, and he's going to be on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's probably what you recognize. Remember when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, what was he on? He was on that donkey, right? And, and the people were laying down the, the palm branches for him to come in. And they're sh shouting, Hosanna, right? And that's, that part is quoted in the New Testament. But notice how this king is described. He's described as just, endowed with salvation, humble, speaking peace and having dominion, if that doesn't sound like Jesus, I don't really know what else does. Because Jesus was as humble as humble can be, right? He was endowed with salvation. He brought salvation. He was just. He never did anything wrong, right? And of course, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He has dominion over every, everything. And so if this isn't Jesus, I don't know what is. And again, this is quoted in the New Testament in reference to Jesus riding into Jerusalem for that last time. And that, this is uh, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, that's Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus was prophesied to be this humble king coming, and he was. It's amazing that we see these prophecies about Christ, and they, they come to fruition. Uh, I like what Wayne Jackson said about this. Uh, about these messianic prophecies. While Isaiah is generally characterized as the messianic prophet, there's a significant messianic emphasis in Zechariah's document as well. In a period of history that was rather dark, it was Zechariah's chore to, de to declare that even though Israel no longer had a king, only a foreign appointed provincial governor, the messianic torch had not gone out. The glorious day of the coming ruler was on the prophetic horizon. Think about this amazing message for the people. They had been in exile. They're coming back. They had met opposition in rebuilding the temple. But Zechariah is promising that there is a king that's coming. He's going to be endowed with salvation. His dominion is going to be from sea to sea. Wouldn't that be an encouragement to you? That, you know what? Maybe it is tough right now. It's been tough for many years. But he's prophesying of somebody coming. That would give me hope. I think that would give you hope, too, that he's prophesying of somebody coming who's going to be so great. And that's what they were waiting for. That's what they were looking for was there the Messiah. And many people missed it, unfortunately, when he came, like the Pharisees. But many people noticed it and believed in him. So as we close out here, 
Remember, Haggai and Zechariah, they're trying to get the people to rebuild the temple. Give them that encouragement. And wouldn't you be in, uh, inspired by Zechariah's message that he's got all these visions that, pro- that are providing hope for the people. And there's other things that we didn't look at that, that God provides hope for the people in the book. But of course, about the king that we just talked about, that would give you hope, right? But the same, here's the thing for us. We are on this, the other side of the cross. They were hundreds of years before Jesus came. I mean, we're talking about the 500s BC when Zechariah is around. So it wasn't for hundreds of years later that the coming king, Jesus, came and died on that cross. He rode into Jerusalem, was that humble king. But we have the vantage point of seeing all of that has played out. And we see Jesus' salvation. It's only in him, as the book of Acts says, their salvation found in no one else. He was the coming king that Zechariah was talking about, and we get to see that. And I know every one of us believe in him here tonight, but there are many people who do not. And maybe you faltered in that. Maybe you've wandered away from that hope that's found in Jesus Christ, that coming king, the king that came, that died for you. What a great thing that we get to see that it's all played out and our sins have been dealt with on the cross. All we have to do is respond to him in obedience. And like we said, give our lives to him in baptism and then walk our our days in the light for him. If you haven't been doing that tonight, there's no better time to start than right now. And if you've never given your life to Christ, you can be clothed with him tonight. Get rid of those filthy garments and put Christ on in baptism. If you have any need, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.